I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks with the Deal. And today our guests are Rob Jackson, a professor at NYU School of Law, and John Morley, who teaches at Yale Law School. Rob and John, thank you for joining us today. Uh, It's my pleasure. Thank you. Delighted to be here. So we're going to talk about a few things on today's podcast. First of all, a lawsuit against Pershing Square Tontine Holdings that you are both involved in. Secondly, Rob, a little about your time as an SEC commissioner from 2017 to last year and how that may shape the research you do as an academic. And then finally, John, your work researching contemporary practice in trusts and estates. So with that, to start, could one of you tell us a little bit about the Pershing Square suit, why it was brought, and then if each of you, John, you could offer your perspective on it from the investment advisor side, and Rob, you could offer your take from the securities law enforcement side. Of course, the suit against Pershing Square grows out of a long-standing research interest of mine in this structure and regulation of investment companies. So I've been interested in this my whole career. And one of the things that attracts me to investment funds and investment companies is their peculiar pattern of organization. I think Pershing Square is a good example of that peculiar pattern of organization. Pershing Square is a professional manager of investment funds. It's registered with the SEC as an investment advisor. And before it began operating this SPAC, it operated a variety of different investment funds, a couple of hedge funds and a closed-end investment vehicle that's publicly traded in Europe. When an investment fund manager sets up an investment fund in this way, it creates a peculiar set of conflicts of interest that calls out for the special kind of regulation that we apply to investment funds. Those conflicts of interest come from an investment fund manager's tendency to operate its funds from the outside. Unlike a regular company like, say, Microsoft or General Motors, an investment fund doesn't have its own CEO, doesn't have its own employees, it doesn't even have its own office. All of those things instead come from the manager, which in this case would be Pershing Square. And that opens up a peculiar set of conflicts of interest because it exposes the fund to exploitation by the manager. That risk is not catastrophic, it can be dealt with, but one of the ways it's dealt with is through regulation. So what concerns me about this fact, basically, is that Pershing Square operates it just like a hedge fund. It set the thing up, it controls it from the outside, and if you look at the prospectus of this fact, you'll find that the exact same people, they name them by name, people who operate Pershing Square's hedge funds also operate this fact. And so when I saw that, I thought, well, gosh, this looks just like an investment fund, and it raises the same kinds of problems. And why have SPACs not been treated as investment funds under the two laws that govern investment funds? One reason is just that the SEC, for whatever reason, has chosen not to enforce the law. Right? In the same way that a police officer is not always going to pull you over for speeding. Sometimes the SEC chooses not to enforce the law, and it does it for all sorts of complicated reasons, only one of which is its view of the actual merits of the law. Another possibility is the SEC is just mistaken. 
Another possibility is that, you know, not every SPAC is the same and not every SPAC poses regulatory problems in precisely the same way. And we think Pershing Square is an especially clear example of the parallels between a SPAC and an investment fund. Rob, what's your perspective on Pershing Square, Tontine Holdings and SPACs generally having spent three years as an SEC commissioner? Well, throughout my academic career and my time on the SEC, I've shared John's commitment to protecting investors. And whatever one thinks of the SPAC market, I don't think anybody, no one on Wall Street or off, thought, you know what would be a great idea? Let's take $150 billion of ordinary Americans' money and put it in this vehicle that has a lengthy track record of governance abuses, of poor performance, and do that in the middle of a pandemic. I don't think anybody thought that this was the purpose uh, for which the vehicle was designed, nor that that volume or scale of ordinary investors' money could or should be managed outside the regime that Congress created in 1940 to protect investors. I think, as John has pointed out, there are a number of regulatory problems raised by SPACs, but one of them that he so keenly observed in connection with his scholarship is that they look like, sound like, and act just like investment companies and investment advisors. And David, the law on that is very clear. Investment companies are required to pay arm's length fees for investment management. They're required to be transparent, to have governance protections. And the concern I have as someone committed to protecting ordinary investors is that these vehicles are ones that are ripe for abuse. And I'm afraid investors are going to get hurt. So obviously, there, there was a SPAC, a wave of SPACs between 2004 and 2007. And that wave ended abruptly. And then they started to reappear in small numbers, perhaps five or six years ago. And that trend has grown, especially in the last two years, where the number of SPACs has mushroomed at an astonishing rate. How come the SEC has not been more aggressive in trying to regulate SPACs as investment funds? Well, first of all, as John's pointed out, all I can say is, as somebody who spent time with the exceptional public servants at the SEC, this latest wave really is the one that has encompassed so much of ordinary Americans' money and put it at such substantial risk of abuse. That's one answer, David. But another is that the SEC, I can tell you from experience, is an agency with limited resources. And the overwhelming size of the SPAC wave of the last 18 months, I think, asks more of the agency in terms of oversight than can possibly be expected. And and that's why we think it's important that regulators have as many tools as possible for this evolving space. I've talked to a number of folks uh, who are involved in this area, and I don't think anybody thinks the SPAC market isn't evolving, isn't going to feature improved governance. And what John and I hope is that this litigation will give regulators as many tools as possible to get this industry in a place where investors are going to be safe. And how does each of you think SPAC regulation should look like? Not just with regard to the investment advisor issue, but with regard to disclosure on the mergers that SPACs affect with operating companies to effectively take them public. I'll let Rob comment on the merger issue. But let me just say that Part of the difficulty the SEC's had in regulating SPACs is that the existing disclosure regime isn't really geared towards SPACs' peculiar problems. Here's an example. The existing disclosure regime doesn't really require SPACs to disclose much detail about their sponsors 
or their sponsor's affiliations. When you invest in a Fidelity mutual fund, you can get, if you want, a ton of disclosures about Fidelity, about who owns it, about what it does, what its other commitments are. You can't get any of those kinds of disclosures about a SPAC sponsor because the disclosure regime isn't set up to accommodate this situation where a company is being managed from the outside. Let me give you another example. Independent directors. So stock exchange regulations say, oh, well, directors really have to be independent of the companies they manage. They can't be employees of the companies that they're directors of. Well, guess what? There are SPACs where the so-called independent directors are literally on the payroll of the sponsors. And that matters because the companies themselves don't have CEOs. The executives all come from the sponsors and their affiliates. So if you're trying to get a board to be separate from the sponsors and its affiliates, you need a regime that recognizes the relevant form of independence, which is independence from the sponsor or the investment advisor, just as it is under the investment company app. And David, just to address your question about the degree to which SPACs do or don't help companies go public in America, when I was an SEC commissioner, I gave a speech about the IPO process in which I know before I was a lawyer, David, I was an investment banker at Bear Stearns. I took companies public in the late 1990s, and we charged a 7% spread on most companies we took public at that time. When I got to the SEC 20 years later, I asked my economist to take a look at the IPO cost, and it was still 7%. And I commented when I was on the SEC that everything in America seemed to have gotten cheaper except accessing US capital markets. And so I'm someone who wants there to be innovation and ways to take company public. But let's just be clear, David, SPACs are not that. First of all, SPACs are somehow even more expensive in terms of professional fees and the cost to investors. Second, uh, we have other new innovations, exciting developments in the space of, for example, direct listings that give new paths to going public. I support bringing companies public and giving ordinary investors a chance to invest in them. But the idea that a vehicle that is somehow even more of a tax on investors than the traditional IPO process, that doesn't strike me as a serious service to investors. And instead, it strikes me as a way for Wall Street to get paid even more than they have in the past. You mentioned direct listings. In talking to people about that form of IPO, I was told that the direct listing works quite well for a large company that has built out an investor relations apparatus, a a company that may be worth $10 billion or more. But for a company with a market cap, you know, in in the low single billions, which is obviously still a, a lot of money and a large organization in terms of value, the direct listing is much less realistic. So the question is, how do you see the future of the direct listing? And is there a form in which you could see the SPAC playing a valuable role in capital formation? Sure. Well, first, I think that's absolutely right, David. And uh, you intuited that the title of the speech I gave at the SEC was the market IPO tax. I noted there that, for example, you know, Facebook didn't pay 7% and they bargained it down to quite a bit less. It's really the middle market American company that's facing the 7% tax and going public. And uh, you're absolutely right that the direct listing process has had so far limited success in addressing that for just the reason you give, David. Just to be clear, I've done it. The process of taking a company public helps those companies prepare for the rigors of the public markets. A good IPO process will address the company's internal controls, will prepare its management for the questions that public investors will have of them. So there is a great deal of valuable 
service done there and people should be paid for it. Um, the question is, um, will what they be paid be competitive? And that brings me back to your question about SPACs. Just to give you a sense, David, during this most recent SPAC wave, until just a few months ago, the actual value of the derivatives and equity given out to the SPAC sponsors was not even disclosable. The SEC staff, the terrific um, acting director of um, uh, corporation finance, John Coates, who's had a spotless career except for having been my corporations professor, he had to make clear that there should be transparency about how much sponsors were charging investors to bring companies public. So can they play a meaningful role in capital formation? Sure. And one more question on the IPO market generally. The, the number of IPOs has never returned to where it was in the late 90s in what turned out to be the dot-com bubble. How much of that is due to just changes in the broader market? The, the fact that it is very challenging for small and mid-cap companies to be public for an extended period of time. And the fact that over the last generation, you've had the formation of truly massive pools of private capital in sovereign wealth funds, venture capital funds, and private equity funds. Well, I think that's exactly right, David. And and let's just break that down into a couple of the issues you've identified. First, you know, one of the things that's hardest about being at the SEC and Washington more generally as someone who started on the business side before I was on the law side, is that lawyers really tend to overestimate the importance of what they do. I can't tell you how many lawyers in Washington told me, Rob, there'd be a lot more public companies if we would regulate them less. I have to tell you, there are fewer public companies in America right now for lots of reasons. You mentioned some, and I'll get back to them in a moment. But I don't, I've never attended the board meeting where a board gets together and says, you know what, let's tap the deepest, most liquid capital markets on earth. Let's get merger currency for the company. Let's get transparency on what we do. Oh, you know what? It's not because the lawyers are really expensive when they fill out Form S-1. I, I don't think anyone has ever really seriously said that. It's the economics that are driving the amount of public companies, uh, not the law, and that's certainly what the evidence suggests. The economics, David, as you point out, is that in 1996, a series of changes uh, to the way that capital is formed on the private side made it possible to be much bigger and be private for much longer. Uh, that was ever the case in the 1990s. When I was taking companies public on the 1990s, if you wanted to raise a billion dollars, you had to ring the bell. You had to go through the IPO process. That's just not the case anymore. You can be Facebook and be very large and be private for much longer. And that's got nothing to do with the legal choices that have been made, but instead the natural market dynamics that have arisen from having private capital formation of that scale. Now, if we want to have a conversation about whether that's a good thing, whether American investors should have access to more of those companies earlier on. We certainly can. Let me add one more thought there, which is whatever one thinks about the regulatory state and the degree to which it has or has not uh, hindered IPOs. The oath I took that when I became an SEC commissioner was not my job to be to make sure there's as many public companies as possible. There's lots of reasons why there's fewer. One of them is a great deal of merger and acquisition activity that's occurred over the last 20 years. Now, The oath I took was to protect investors and putting investors in companies at an earlier stage and a younger age, just by the iron laws of finance, requires them to take more risk. And I think a big part of the SEC's task is to make sure investors understand that risk before they take them. Rob, we've talked about SPACs and we've talked about the IPO process broadly. What were some of the other lessons you took from your time at the SEC that you hope to explore as an academic and that you're interested in teaching to your students? Well, 
it was such a privilege to be on the SEC and to serve with the staff at that agency. And I learned a huge amount from them. I mean, the only piece of furniture I added to my office during my time on the SEC was a whiteboard because often I was learning so much that I was diagramming what folks were walking me through or teaching me. And I learned a tremendous amount, both about the incredible character and hard work of the staff at the SEC, but also about the law. And it did lead to a number of research interests that I've been exploring. You know, one of them was the chairman's work on what became regulation best interest taught me a lot about the different law that applies to brokers and investment advisors who work with individual investors. And I learned a great deal about that from advocates and from staff at the commission. And David, I've been doing some recent research on the various laws that govern the advice that individual investors get when they try to make decisions about how to plan for their retirement and their family's future. Uh, in a new paper that's forthcoming in the Stanford Law Review with my co-authors, Colleen Honigsberg and Edwin Hu, we show that in fact, brokers tend to move between the federal and state level regimes for regulation of financial advice. And they do that, especially when they've got a long record of misconduct at the federal level. In other words, if you're someone who's gotten complaints from investors at the federal level that you put them in products that were dangerous, you'll move to the state level and particular state insurance regulation to continue to do that work under less scrutiny. You know, the different law that governs that is not something I had thought deeply about until I got to the commission and had to vote on rules on that subject. And one reason I've begun to, begun to focus on it is I realized the retirement crisis that ordinary American families are facing. Um, it wasn't something that I knew as much about as I probably should have before I joined the commission. But what became clear to me is that American families are struggling to save for their retirement. You know, the median 65-year-old American investor has less than $100,000 saved for retirement. And it became clear to me that these are folks who cannot afford fraud. So that ignited in me a new interest, a new passion for trying to understand how investors get hurt when they get advice from financial advisors and what we can do about it. And that's just one example of some of the new work I've been doing since I stepped down from the commission. Thanks, Rob. And then John, to conclude, tell us a, a little bit about your project in trust and estates law. I'd be happy to. My interest in trust and estates is partly an outgrowth of my interest in both organization and investment management. If you think about it, Trusts are kind of the original vehicles for investment management. Landed families since the late Middle Ages have placed their property in trust and used it to manage the property and transfer it from generation to generation. So this is something in which I have a longstanding research interest. And so your current project, which you're working on with Yale Listikin at Yale, Tell us about that. As I understand it, involves gathering information about thousands of contemporary wills. The project is a survey of about 8,000 American adults. And we ask them basically what they want to do with their property when they pass away. We're still in the process of analyzing the data. So everything I'm about to tell you is preliminary. But what we asked them was, who are your family members? What's your property like? And if you were to pass away today, what would you like to do with your property? It's an important question because a lot of property passes, of course, by inheritance. And more importantly, it's an occasion for people to express what matters to them. Inheritance has always been a kind of mirror of the societies in which it takes place. Think about those Jane Austen novels in which there's constant drama about who's going to inherit what. 
And that drama around inheritance from the deceased shapes the lives of the living. Well, right now we've got a similar challenge that we're facing, which is how to grapple with the changing nature of the American family. There are more blended families now than there used to be. There are more non-marital families now than there used to be with people living together for long periods of time without getting married. And then there are, of course, just more single people who aren't married. And so we have to figure out how to shape our inheritance system around that. The biggest challenge is what to do with the assets of people who don't have wills. If you die with a will, we just do what your will says with only a few limitations. If you die without a will, we have to decide what we're going to do with your property. And there are a number of things we could choose to do. But the main one that the law tries to do is to do what you want. Rather than doing what we think is fair or just, we try to reconstruct what we think you would want. And so the logic of this survey project is to say, well, what do people want? We want to just get some evidence in which people say for themselves what they would want. And so what have you learned? What do people want? And and how is that different from what they might have wanted 50 years ago or 100 years ago? Doing a survey grants us two advantages over prior ways of studying estate distribution. So until now, the main method of studying what people want to do has been to walk down to the local courthouse and look at wills. And you get 100 or 200 wills and you say, well, what do these people do with their property? There's two problems with that. One is there's a huge selection bonus. People who make wills might very well be different from people who don't. And we don't even know how different they are because we've never looked at the wills of people. We've never looked at the preferences of people who don't make wills. The other problem is that when we look at a probated will, we don't really know what this person's family is like. If a guy dies and doesn't give property to his stepchildren, is that because he didn't want to give property to his stepchildren? Or is it because he didn't even have any stepchildren? We don't know because the probate records don't tell us. Our survey does because we begin by asking about a person's family before we ask them how they'd like to divide up their property among those family members. And so far in our preliminary analyses, we've discovered a couple of things that strike me as being unanticipated. The first is that people give a lot less to their spouses than we would have predicted. Under the Uniform Probate Code, which has been adopted in more than 20 states and reflects the state of the art social scientific thinking about these matters, if you die and you're survived by a spouse and children who are also from that spouse, in other words, if it's a leave it to beaver family, Uniform Probate Code is going to give everything to your spouse. What we find, though, is that in our data, the, the mean gift to a spouse is only about 50%. And about a quarter of our respondents are giving nothing to their spouses. Instead, they're mostly giving to their children. And that's another thing that perhaps is not surprising, but still emphatically clear from the data. People give to their families. They don't give much to charity. They don't give much to their friends. They don't give to their extended families. They give to their immediate families. Overwhelming. Another thing that we're kind of learning that we find is really interesting is that people give more to their non-marital partners than we would have predicted. Whereas the mean gift to a spouse is just above 50%, the mean gift to a non-marital partner is about 40%. That was surprising to us because we thought, well, gosh, if you're not married to this person, it's because you don't want them to get the kinds of things that they'd ordinarily get from marriage, which could sometimes include a share of your estate. And what that tells us is that people really value those relationships, perhaps even a little more than we might have anticipated. A further discovery is that people give a lot more to their stepchildren. 
people rarely give to their stepchildren when their spouses are still living, right? If I'm married to a woman, I'm going to give to her rather than to her children. But if she dies before me, then I can't give to her. And so I might give to her children. That's a surprising thing because most states make no provision at all for stepchildren in their intestacy laws. They'll give the money to the governor before they'll give it to your stepchildren. And in the states that do give property to stepchildren, they only do it if all of your other relatives have passed away. Only if you've got no second cousins living will your stepchildren get anything. And that may be the biggest discovery that comes out of this. I think stepchildren are going to be way up in the order of intestate inheritance. John, Rob, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a lot of fun. It's been a pleasure, David. Thanks again. For Drinks with the Deal, I'm David Marcus.